0: You are listening to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. We shine a light on the topics that matter to digital and data leaders in the NHS. I'm Thomas Lyon, and I help connect digital leaders in the NHS with interim talent, and I am your host. Let's go around, do introductions, and if you could please introduce yourself, the trust you work for, and your role within that trust. Stephen, as you were here first, would you kindly go first?
1: Hello, yes. Uh, Thanks for having me on the podcast. So, my name is Stephen Hives. I'm the EPR Programme Manager at St. George's, and my role is to integrate Epsom and St. Helia um, uh, PAS systems and patient records onto St. George's CERNA implementation.
0: Brilliant. Thank you for that, Stephen. And um, Kamal, would you like to go next?
2: Yeah, thank you. Um, So, Kamal Bayer, i have up until last week been working for berkshire oxfordshire and buckinghamshire ics integrated care system and trying to pull three ccgs into um the direction of one um specifically looking at digital and digital first
0: brilliant thank you very much Kamal. and last not least but peter
2: yeah hi guys
3: Uh, thanks very much for let me join today. Um uh, Peter Bradbury, I'm the Program Manager at Trimley Trust, um, looking after a number of different projects, tactical as well as um, major programmes like EPR and ERP. And uh, yeah, it be interesting to find out uh, um, so how, how this uh, pans out. It uh, sort of, uh, should hopefully be a very good, interesting session.
0: Yes, I agree. I agree. Thank you very much, Peter. So you've all sent some excellent questions. So thank you very much. Um, and I'd like to invite, you know, Peter Bradbury to ask the first question. So Peter said, whilst considering the NHS over the next 10 years, what are the barriers that you foresee, including digital innovation into your trust moving forward? Now, Peter, would you like to elaborate on uh, for the group on that one first?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So. Um very interested in the next 10 years of what the NHS is all, all gonna how it's all going to shape up in in, in in particular really the digital um, journey and also how um, the uh, you know the NHS will actually cope with uh, taking on digital opportunities in particular you know innovation and innovation around a number of different areas. Um, some really are around you know new technologies being like smartphones being introduced, um, but also, you know, uh, AI and how does that going to work and how's that going to impact the trust uh, together with, um, you know, later developments like um, these drone copters, as they call them, which are a way of actually getting ambulances out there and to uh, assist ambulances in, in the way forward. So, all these um, new ideas, and I can elaborate a lot more on that as we go through, um, but there will be some resistance, uh, you know. I think a couple of us have been through the EPR journey. We know what the culture is like and you get some fast followers and some slow followers and uh, you know wherever you go and whatever you do uh, change is, is coming and people are either uh, adaptable towards it or uh, not at all and and, uh, and uh, the people who take it up, the fast followers as I call them, are the ones who are, are the younger, younger generation. Um, but, you know, the whole thing is going to change. I mean, the NHS is, is geared to change in the next 10 years. So it's going to be very interesting to find out how and where this technology creeps in. Uh, I know from my point of view, we, we started to look at robots in the back office um, recently, but that's only touching the iceberg, you know, the tip. There's loads and loads more to do. Um, but you need a stable platform to start with. Um, you need to have um, a baseline. We've got two and a half hospitals in Frimley. And we've got no baseline, but VPR will have a baseline, and that will Mm -hmm. enable us to then move forward with um, AI, um, uh, predictive analytics, and stuff like that, which is going to be fantastic. Um, So, so the world is everybody's oyster, really. And think of how much change can go through in the next ten years. It's going to be very interesting. So, interesting in the panel's views on what um, what the uh, the barriers to entry are on this particular journey.
0: Brilliant. Thank you very much, Peter. Uh, Kamal, would you like to kind of answer that for Peter?
2: Yeah, I don't think I can answer it, but I can certainly take the conversation a yes. bit further. Can you imagine if I had the answer to that question? <laughs> I know, I
0: think you'd be solving so many problems and you'd be selling a million dollar idea right there. Yeah.
2: Um, I think, you know, one of the things that, the sort of angles that I come to all of this is that, you know, change and NHS seem to be, uh, they coexist, don't they? Um, and uh, every time you think you've got to a point where you've um, put a good piece of transformation your you're starting on the next one so I think although people say that we're not um, good at change in the NHS we have to do it we're constantly evolving um, and I do say to people if you don't like change then the NHS isn't probably the good place for you um, but I think to me, it's about two things. I think it's about people, um, because I think unless we take, to, you know, our staff, our patients, our teams with us, I don't think we can enable that change, um, you know, and, and I think there has to be an imperative. Um, we saw that obviously during the response um, to COVID and the impact uh, of digitalization, very rapid. We could never have achieved that pace of change um, with traditional programmes. And so now I think this is an opportunity for us to just reflect slightly, not for long, but enough to say, how did that feel? What worked? What did we do well? And therefore, what do we need to hold on to going forward?
0: No, thank you for that, kamal very seems like you're quite keen on the reflective piece and, you know, and kind of, How do you bring people to the change? I mean, a few people have made that. Like you said, the resistance change is massive amongst the NHS. Um, Stephen, what would you like to add to that?
1: Um, Yeah, I was just thinking in in terms of what we're doing in London, there is an initiative in London called One London, where it is seeking to uh, collaborate. It's it's, it's asking trusts right across London to collaborate in all sorts of different ways. And that's a very exciting opportunity. But the, the, the challenge to that is to try and coordinate the, the uh, objectives of the individual trust. E- each trust has its own priorities and set of priorities and objectives. Um, and so that that in itself is, um, it is desirable, but challenging. And as Kamal said, the, the, there has to be an imperative and, and that imperative needs to be understood and agreed right across the board. So if you're asking... Um, what is the, the next 10 years going to look like, I think there will be a greater collaboration and the trusts involved in it need to let go of it in order for that to happen uh, mm-hmm. and to accept that there is a, a big picture to address here. Um, mm-hmm. and, and and Peter just also made the point about um, artificial intelligence and, and yes, that is a very exciting opportunity and I think it will definitely happen within the next 10 years. But there is a uh, an initiative that I tried to get off the ground uh, probably a couple of years ago, where uh, there was AI capability uh, in radiology, whereby um, um, AI capability would would not not replace the radiologist's role, but would facilitate the radiologist in identifying uh, potentially sick patients. And this was created by a university. It was actually the University of Warwick. And, and they've got this, this great tool um, but to try and get that introduced into the NHS mm-hmm. was really difficult. And I think possibly because um, people, maybe radiologists or whatever, were nervous about introducing mm-hmm. new technology and how it might affect their role mm-hmm. within the mm-hmm. NHS. So, so to, to your point, you know, there was resistance mm-hmm. um, and, and I'm sure it's going to happen, but yeah. It's just going to get it's just going to take time for people to understand that um, to to not be fearful of what this new technology is going to do. So, um, Mm. yeah, it's going back to to that point. There needs to be an imperative and everyone needs to embrace it.
0: Brilliant. Mm. Kamal, what would you like to add to that?
2: Uh, I'm just, uh, you know, Stephen raised the point of One London and that sounds very exciting, Um, you know, with the trust coming together and, and. To me, it is about systems coming together to talk about how can we achieve better health outcomes because um, everybody's so used to working in silos and we're not going to achieve the objectives we need to. All our patients are collective patients. They go to multiple systems. They go to multiple um, services. And so we need to engage them together. Um, And I think if we can work out a way of talking patient's language trying to think about okay what do clinicians need what do what does the system need and where are the wins that we can collectively gain from I think that would be helpful um, and that you know I totally get Stephen's point that there is that that feeling of being threatened um, and sort of so I come from primary care background and We looked at um, uh, an IBM tool called Dr. Watson, which was looking at um, predictive um, diagnostics, really, um, and looking at a patient. And everybody felt like, oh, gosh, they're trying to get rid of doctors. I think when we're looking at the kind of demand that we've got in the NHS, we need to be looking at more alternative solutions that are going to help us alleviate that, not be threatened by it.
0: That's a very good point, that, Kamal, very good point. Peter, what would you like to add?
3: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Kamal. And, uh, you know, we know that these big organisations are fragmented. You know, when you get into a company bigger than 10,000 people, you've Mm -hmm. got fragmented organisations. You get pockets of SMEs around, you you know, it's the informal network where you have to go around and speak to these people and build that relationship before you can actually get anything done. Um, But that's the same in any big organisation outside in the, in the private sector too. Um, So yeah, there needs to be a a much easier way of driving things forward and uh, to a certain degree EPR at uh, Frimby is certainly happening that way. It's it's certainly transforming the whole hospital, which is fantastic. Um, But um, you've got technical enablers, you've got people enablers, you've got management enablers. I I think all these things contribute to a successful uh, organisation. But there's one common theme, which is you need a common platform to launch all this. And, and, and once you get that going, you've got great opportunities to start to... to you know, if, if I could turn around to uh, my CEO and say, by the way, I can predict what's going to happen this time next year, it'd be biting mm-hmm. my hand off. And that's what predictive analytics can actually provide. It can provide mm-hmm. you insights into numbers of patients can run in through to the hospital, what your your pinch points are going to be, and you can plan for that. And that's that's really going to be half of the battle, is, is planning ahead and, and making sure that you can, but obviously with a pandemic you can't, but you know, the normal business um, uh, um, scenarios you can. So there's lots and lots of opportunities. There's loads of low hanging fruit, as I call it, where you mm-hmm. can pick off you know, you know the robotic stuff, where you can try and do some of that in the back office. There's some other things you can try these and test these things around the organization, but I I think it will be that sort of slow creeping approach. I I can't see it being a full frontal that's going to do this. If something works successfully, then let's see if we can develop that and take that forward
2: in our areas.
0: That's brilliant, brilliant. Thank you very much, Peter. Um, Is anyone anyone else like to add anything to that?
2: we are in a new world and we're going to be going into an even newer world and new ways of working. And I do think we need to take a leap of faith and, and you know, perhaps think like that one London type uh, organization yeah. where we're thinking, okay, let's do this together. We know the demand on health and social care is such that we can't manage it. Um, and so we do need to start planning, thinking about pathways, looking at that predicted demand thinking about well okay if we tweak this we don't really then want to create a problem in another part of the system so it is very much about that collective uh, voice and doing things together but I do think it is important to bring the patient voice into that as well Mm. so that you keep them on that part of the journey.
0: It's a shame Linda couldn't join us because she had a lot to say about, obviously she's the Assistant uh, Director Transformation at Imperial College and she's been overseeing like kind of the, the quad merger currently going on um, and she had a lot to say about that and when I spoke with her previously around his transformation on a one-to-one basis, you know, she was very much about the patients and ensuring that the patients had a good journey and they kind of felt they were being looked after and made it easy for them to receive the care, so that's a really good point, I do like that point and well thank you for that and thank you for that Peter that was very interesting Um, and moving on to kind of what Stephen's uh, point would like to make so um, Stephen would like to say what has been the most significant challenge to you with regards to adhering to the timeline of an EPI implementation Stephen do you want to elaborate a bit more on that before we um, send out to the panel?
1: Yeah um, so I've implemented a number of EPR solutions from Cerner from the big ones, as Cerner, and the smaller ones, such as patient Source, and so, and so forth. And one of the key, key criteria uh, when you finish a project is to go through lessons learned and say, right, well, we're not going to do that again, or we're going to do that better. But you know what, it's the same mistakes do get made um, because it's not as easy as that. Um, mm-hmm. for, for example, you know, um, th- there are some implementations I- in the country right now where they're, they're struggling to hit the timeline because, for example, um, validation was not performed in the way that were expected and you think, how did that happen again? Right, and mm-hmm. and, and 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 that happens um, on mm-hmm. on too many occasions. And and what do we le- what do we learn from that? What is the lesson there? Well, mm-hmm. to avoid that, you need getting good engagement at every stage of the project. From mm-hmm. on the uh, from, from the interested parties. Um, mm-hmm. So if you get good engagement from the users to define what the as is, to define what the 2B processes need to be, then mm. then validation will work if, if you don't get that right. Uh, and and this is a common theme um, that you do need to get uh, solid engagement throughout the life cycle of the project from people who are the busiest within the team. Um, mm. And 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 you also need very good engagement from the supplier. In, in my case, it's um, we're using um, Cerner on this one and my last project, it was Cerner. Um and they are very, very good. Um, if you can compare it to, to the Cerner of National Programme for IT days back in the day um, where they said. That um, this is our solution, take it or leave it, right? <laughs> they don't. They don't do it anymore. They're, they're much, much better. At being effective and and the relationship with uh, our supplier is very good because they recognise that they have to be flexible if they are to to um, to to maintain their presence in the market to ensure that we do get good validation and then stick to the timeline. Um, but nevertheless, it, it is a very huge and complex and sophisticated system. You know, you can compare that to something like uh, some of the smaller EBRs for, for the smaller units, such as, I don't know, say take, take patient source, for example, which is it's very, very flexible. It's, it's nothing like the Cerner's. Um, uh, so each each has their own niche in the market. Each have their place, to, their, their part to play. Um, but whether it's a big one like Cerner or it's a it's a small one, you just got to have good engagement with the supplier. And you've got to have very good engagement with with all of your key users, and not when they're not busy, uh, and uh, at every stage of the game. Mm, mm,
0: mm. Oh, that's a very good point, Stephen, A very, very good point. I mean, CERN is one of the biggest ones at the moment. You know, we hear a lot of people implementing it. And you made a point around, you know, um, people have not kind of looked back on the issues that have been facing the past and how does it re happen again? Because you tend to look at, you know, how over implementations went and kind of build on their mistakes to ensure it doesn't happen again. But obviously, it does. And um, Kamal, what would you like to add to that?
2: Yeah, I mean, a couple of things really. I was just thinking about the. The keeping people engaged and on board, I think that's part of that iterative approach that you need to have where you're building in any um, connection from them, because they're the ones who are going to have the disruption if it goes wrong. So trying to be ahead of the game, trying to make sure that you're you're building in and, and staying uh, in front of the curve, really. I think a responsive supplier is absolutely critical because they can very often be the the enabler with the lessons learned by saying that happened there so we make sure that we mitigate that here by doing this or that or the other i think having um clear leadership also is really important Um, Because I do think, you know, whilst a bottom up approach is important from the engagement point of view, I think really clear leadership from the top to say this is what we're doing um, is, is really important. You know, I've been in systems where sometimes one person might be saying another and somebody quite critical is saying, actually, I don't believe in this change. And uh, and then you're like, well, hang on, we need the board together on this and, and we all need to be singing off of the same hymn sheet. Um, and I was just going to sort of bring us around to another point, if you don't mind, and that's just thinking about um, sort of staff and patient. Uh, and this is a general one about digital literacy. And, and what I'm probably thinking about here is, training and I don't mean training in the, this is a new system and you need to know how to use it because many people will say to you I've been doing this job for ages and I know how to use it and I'm you know good at my job etc etc but I think one of the things that I've been trying to converse with people on is that that sort of that margin of difference where you're doing something and you've always done it but somebody knows a better way to do it and I, you know, when I worked in primary care, I used to bring this IT uh, consultant in once a year. He'd spend half an hour with each clinician and go, "Show me how you do that." And they'd go, "That," and he'd say, "Oh no, 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 no! This is how you do it." And, and you know, it's just that sharing or of best practice, really, I think, is really important. And nobody, nobody knows what they don't know. So it's you've got to get to that, haven't you? <laughs>
0: No, it's very true. Very good point, Kamal. Um, Peter, what would you like to add to that?
3: Yeah, uh, concur with a lot of you said what you said there, both of you actually. Um, you know, lessons learned are absolutely valid. You know, one hundred percent. As is two B processes again. Yeah, we we took an exercise where we used uh, Gartner to help us um, uh, walk through the early parts of EPR. In the early days and we held um, um, a lot of sessions with uh, with the suppliers but also with um, staff got them engaged early on uh, and that worked really well and they the the, the expectation was set that you know um, the EPR solution that we, we were going to employ deploy is the answer to all the prayers uh, and I hope that is the case <laughs> I a my breath on that um, but yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, it's all about building relationships. It's all about people. It's all about making sure you engage. It's all mm-hmm. about uh, teamwork. It's all about best practice. It's clear leadership. All the good qualities that mm-hmm. uh, you know, us on the call here will bring to the party. I think mm-hmm. regularly, um, and there's so many stories you can you can you can bring out where things haven't gone right, and you know what the answer is straight away is because. We didn't communicate properly in the beginning of a, of a project, or we didn't actually share things, or we didn't uh, build a, um, the governance, we hadn't got the right uh, um, senior management involved, and we, and we were trying to drive it from the bottom up and all the rest of it. You know, you, there's a tons and tons of stories around that. I think um, w- one of the, the key issues is, is um, and I, I will go on about this quite a bit because it's one of the key things, is, is really getting a, a collective, um, View because um, there are there are as I said earlier on fragmentation where you get pockets of people and they go off and do their own thing, mm. and I think bringing that all together is key. Uh, and one thing which I didn't mention earlier, which I, I, was, I was trying to allude to, was um, data. It's all about data in the NHS. You know, when you think of the, it's um, when someone described it <laughs> described the H- NHS to me as as a as a patient factory where there's assessment going on every five minutes. You know, you assess someone and you pass on someone else, they assess them and so on and so forth. Why, why not kind of bring all that data together and just assess one person at one time and everybody has that information, which is really what an EPR, a single patient journey is, is starting to bring. It saves and it cuts down so much duplication, it really does. But um, yeah, it's some very interesting points here, but it is a people's, people's factory.
0: Brilliant. Thank you very much, Peter. Stephen, as he put your hand up, what would you like to add?
3: Yeah, I, I just wanted to
1: sort of uh, go back to what Peter was just saying about governance, and and that's something that I that absolutely should be discussed in more detail for every large scale project. You know, Frimley's got a massive project and and St George's teaming up with Epsom and St Header is, is again a massive project. And without good governance, without good structure associated with it, that um, people will wander off in their own directions. Uh, and 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 think they're doing the right thing but it, it's absolutely critical and key that not only do you have the governance structure set up but you have the the functionality if you like that goes with with that structure so you have um you have good terms of reference and you have good standard operating procedures and you have the right people involved at in each of those structures at the right time and there is a process for evaluating every step of the project every way um, so that you don't get too far down the line and and you get users saying, oh, hang on a minute, that's, that's not what I meant at all. Um, mm-hmm. or, or, for example, there might be a decision made about a, an imp- important piece of functionality or a workflow um, that, that it might be too late and, and you might find out that it's not the right thing to do when you come to sort of what's called, I don't know, future state validation or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, g- governance it's absolutely key and and that is not such an easy thing to define you do need experienced people who who know what governance should look like uh, and and know how to implement it and it's it's not just a tick box exercise i thought yeah yeah we've got governance it it it, it does need to be careful for that and there are specialists out there in that so yes I, I i completely agree
0: with with um, peter's peter's point on that Oh, brilliant. Thank you, Stephen. Would anyone else like to add anything to that?
2: Um, not around governance, but I was just thinking evaluation is quite important. Mm. But I think that comes back to the sort of lessons learned and what are we yeah. doing with it and how are we, how are we um, uh, establishing things. I think there's something about giving people greater control over their own care, over the way that they're managing data. And I think data is the key. Absolutely. Um, You know, and I think if you do it well and you explain to people what you're using that data for, it's such a powerful resource and tool. And we've got so much data in the NHS. We can't use it to the extent that we need to. There are not enough analysts out there to, to sort of, you know, number crunch everything we've got. Um, So maybe AI needs to help with that. But um, I think there's also something about, you know, what's that collective goal that we've all got? I think if you ask any single person who works in the NHS, their ultimate goal is always about delivering a good patient experience. Um, And I think, you know, when we're looking at, well, what's that imperative? What is the thing that's going to pull us together? It's about making sure that experience is good. And also remembering we're all customers, patients, clients, whatever you wanna call ourselves, service users of the system that we're working in. Um, and you know, you don't wanna be in a situation where you're having to use it, but if you are, you wanna make sure it's, it's providing what, what you had set out to deliver when you were at the other side setting it out. And so there's something about sustainability as well, Um, you know, implementing something that is going to deliver what you intended it to set out.
0: Oh, i completely agree i mean the cios i spoke with yesterday on a previous podcast they touched on you know it about when you implement and um, you know do this transformation or implement an epr it very much needs to be about user focused and you know the the end users um needs in mind because if you don't then like I said then you're bringing on the resistance to change and you know what what ultimately what what are you trying to achieve because you know if you don't consider that then you know um, if anyone else would like to add in regards to timeline of EPI implementation? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, Peter. Sorry.
3: Yeah, I'm I just going to say um, some some of the, the lessons we learned. So you know, NHS. You, t- you think of it. NHS is one big organisation, and the yeah. trusts are departments. Um, the departments you can you know in in a normal organisation, you can go and knock on a door or another department. They might say, "Oh, hello, yeah." You're from there, okay, well, we don't want to talk to you, and there's a list of problems. When you go to the NHS, when we went to, to do our EPIC, um, uh, or EPR, I should say, journey in the early days, we, we knocked on the door of quite a few trusts to, to understand how they went about their EPR solution. And they were so helpful. It was it was really, really fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and wherever we went, they would, they, they, they would bend over backwards and say, the information we've got, you know sit down and have, you know, lunch with us and all the rest of it and spend time with us. It was brilliant. And I, I think that was that was a great team ethos across the whole NHS, which you do find it's a people caring organization.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And everybody wants to do a great job. As 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 Camille just said, quite rightly, it's it's mm-hmm. one of those organizations where it's driven by passion and individuals to drive things forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that can be used more extensively, you know, um, in 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 the work environment and i think uh, if you can build that and take that forward that passion will you know we got to a point where we got to epr where there was so much riding on which uh, which supplier we wanted to use and, and the empathy and the the passion behind one particular supplier meant that the ceo had no choice but to sign up but i'm sure that's not the case but my old did that but <laughs> but um um, it felt that way, you know, it, and and, and, it, and it people power. It's all about people power, absolutely. There's there's yeah. no way about it. So we've all got some great ideas, and we should share more. Um, mm-hmm. And one one someone said to me the other day about the suppliers, you know, these big pl- uh, big players like Acuna or Epic, they go around each department and change the same, sort of, they charge the same sort of price mm-hmm. for for rolling out an EPR, but they shouldn't because we're one well massive bunch of departments, so we should be getting some discount on uh, mm. if it's it rolled out somewhere, why don't you roll it out next door? And by the way, it shouldn't be as dear as it is. Mm. So, you know, we've got to think about that a bit more as, as a joined up collective team, I think, across the patch.
0: Mm. Oh, brilliant. Thank you, Peter. And I love the point about NHS collaboration. That's one of, the, one of the things, you know, I love the team with the NHS, that everyone works so collaboratively. It's such a small world. And I think it's very nice to hear, especially when each and every single one of us are users of the NHS at some point like I said unfortunately but you are mm-hmm. going to need it and it's nice to know that there's that collaboration and everyone's so focused around patient care I mean it's, it's fantastic there's no other company in the world that would be like that mm-hmm. um, and like I said you know if you go, go to your neighbour and ask about what went wrong no other company would do that but in the NHS you know, the more than keen to help and yeah. kind of learn from those mistakes, which is brilliant. Yeah. Um, so and then we have Kamal's question, and so Kamal, was, I'd like, like to make the point on how to make this transformation inclusive to make sure everyone benefits from digitalized care. Kamal, would you like to elaborate on that before we um, direct it to Stephen and Peter?
2: Yeah, um, I think I was thinking specifically about the fact that, um. You know online consultations video consultations all the type of access that was rapidly um deployed at scale and speed and immensely disruptive in one way uh immensely innovative but not really innovation in another way um but yet you, the extremities you've got with the people who have and the people who have not in terms of the, the technical know-how or the, the kit to be able to access this on is huge. Um, and so how do we try and dismantle some of those barriers? How do we work together collectively, collaboratively, um, so that they don't have 10 different types of apps on their phone? They don't have, you know, a million different ways of accessing their own information. So it's back to that point about trying to give people greater control over their own care, but also providing a um, a connected NHS so that we're we're doing it together, and it might even be wider than the NHS because you know it starts off with people who wouldn't have normally used uh, an online tool, having um, had to use it for banking and shopping during during COVID. And then it's an extension of, OK, how do we make that better? And and then the trusts are using one type of system, primary care using another type of system, community using another. And the poor patient's confused going, which one am I <laughs> going <Yeah>. on? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: no, it's a very good point, Kamal. Thank you. Um, Stephen, what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I, I think um, so Kamal com- is, is coming at this from different position that I am coming from. So, so Kamal gets more involved from a patient perspective um, and, and clearly patient is paramount, but, but my users are all clinicians within the trust. And so uh, I can answer that question f- from that perspective uh, rather than from the patient's perspective. And, um, and, and to do so, I would say, and it's still, you know, relevant is, is that the solution that we're trying to implement, the change, the transformation we want to implement has to be relevant to the users. Um, There has to be a a need for them to do that. And going back to sort of something that Peter was saying about 10 minutes ago, where he said that the implementation of this solution will be the answer to all our prayers. Well, if you can convince them that it will be the answer to all their prayers, first of all, you've got to define what the problem is, that they might not even know that they've got a problem, (laughs) but (laughs) you know, you've got to define what the problem is. And here is the solution to answer all of your prayers. is is an important step you've got to explain why it is relevant um and and so there, there are sort of kind of two steps i would suggest really in ensuring that that the users of this system certainly within the trust and, and EPR system uh, to ensure that it, it's inclusive is is one it does have to be led from the top and that's something that command said earlier on. Right? it has to be led from the from the top that, it, it should not be, for example, seen as an IT project. Mm. That would be a mistake. And, and mm. the best transformation products are those projects are those projects that are led by the operational users and the clinicians, but powered by mm. IT. And, mm. and that's what I always say when I talk to CD users and the management team of trust, that it is, it is not me from IT telling you what you need to do. Mm-hmm. You, you, you need to know what you, what you want to get out of it you need to lead from the front and I will be right behind you providing you with all the data the information and the support and the methodology for for getting it in um so so um so it needs to be led from the top and and in support of that there needs to be from an outset a very good comms strategy communication strategy that uh, helps people understand why they're doing it helps them uh, appreciate the challenges uh that everyone's got and why everyone needs to collaborate from beginning to end uh and by keeping everyone involved by talking to people in that way um you're, you're you're more likely to succeed in in getting it over the line i would suggest
0: no it's very interesting thank you steve because i mean you mentioned before about communication and when we spoke about you know uh, the biggest barriers to kind of um EPI implementation and adhering to the timelines. I noticed that communication was mentioned a lot. So, would you all agree that communication is a big part of digital yeah. transformation? Yeah.
2: Yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Because yeah. Kamal made it a bit early on in the in the show, he made made a point around um, you don't know what you don't know, and sometimes people think that they're doing it the best way that they can. But like Stephen said, someone come in and show them, you know, no, mm-hmm. this is what you can do, and you could do it in probably half the time. Um, Peter, what would you like to add to that?
3: Well, I concur with both for Stephen and Kamal. I think, uh, start with Stephen, I uh, totally agree. Trans- these are transformation programmes. EPR is not an IT. It's powered and supported by IT, but it's not an IT programme. And as soon as everybody gets that in their heads, then I think we will start feeling much better. Uh, mm-hmm. It's very much collaborative. Um, it's very much working with individuals and, and supporting those individuals and driving things forward as a, as a as a team. But it is it is a transformation. So the hospital, you know, we're going live in March with our uh, EPR, the hospital won't be the same again. It will be changed, there won't be the same processes, there won't be people doing the same jobs, they'll be doing different jobs. And that is a, that's a huge undertaking when you think about it. You know, it's a massive big HR exercise to start with. There's jobs to be reallocated, people to be trained up. Training is a huge, uh, I think someone mentioned it earlier, a huge undertaking, and it mustn't be underestimated. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got the whole way of operational working and reporting as well, back mm-hmm. into the and into the senior and into the NHS general uh, national. Um, and, and Camille, I think um, so. It was an interesting discussion around the state of play in the future. I mean, it was all about started off talking about GPs, and I was talking to a dentist actually, which is quite interesting. And she said, oh, GPs will disappear in the next." Uh, couple of years, you won't have a GP anymore, you won't need them, because you'll have all this online stuff, you have uh, uh, self-regulating sort of types of interviews or virtual interviews, and then you'll go along to um, uh, a health specialist who will then point you into the areas that you need to go and see, you know, which, oh, you're, they've done the analysis up front in other words, and you'll be pointed towards somebody who's a specialist in that area. So you, you remove the GPs, which I thought was oh, quite an interesting, interesting uh, trait. But everything's going that way. You know, when you look at technology, everything is going virtual. Everything is, mm. is being looked at. Speed is the essence. You know, mm. if you can look at, if you can diagnose pro- problems, uh, problems much quicker mm. and you can do it in minutes rather than days or weeks, mm. this is going to be, everybody will be up for that. Um, mm. There, there are. Agree. There are some people who are going to struggle with that. The elderly won't be able to latch on to, IT mm. that quickly or virtual or, desktops or laptops or, or, or iPhones or whatever. So you will get some people who are going to be struggling, um, but that, that's definitely the way it's going to go in the next ten years. There's a massive shift. We we've seen uh, and one thing out the the pandemic, which I think someone touched on. Uh, was there, some, there were some benefits out of the, uh, the, the COVID patch where we accelerated our Windows 10 and Office 365 rollout in a space of nine months rather than 10 years, which normally would have taken us. You know, we, we, we got people working from home who never wanted to work from home ever, and, and that was a massive turnaround. And, and I was reading a report somewhere saying uh, the NHS now is more of a proactive organisation because there are these test centres where you can go in and get tested for potentially, you know, diseases further down the line, if you like. Um, But the Mm. DNA piece is going to be very interesting because they're going to start looking at people's DNA and fathom out what the future is and then Mm. you'll get this preventative medicine or, or, or a sort of approach to actually, you know, reduce that risk of coming towards you, which I think is absolutely where we need to be. So there's tons and tons of change going on. Absolutely. How fast mm-hmm. it will move, I don't know. Ten years, maybe. Twenty mm-hmm. years, probably. Thirty, or well, definitely. Mm-hmm. But you know, mm-hmm. we've got to, they've really got to accelerate. that, Put the foot in the accelerator with this uh, this new uh, digital approach. I think new yeah, uh,
0: innovation uh, across that whole piece.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Brilliant. Thank you, Peter. Kamal, do you have anything like to add?
2: Yeah. No. I mean, it's interesting. At the moment, I think we still need GPs, but um, going forward, I don't know. But I think, you know what it's like with workforce? They're constantly changing what their deliverables are. So whilst they might be called a GP now, they might be called something else then. So you might still need um, somebody doing something in that role. Um, And I think one of the things that I think we always underestimate is, Um, the workforce in the NHS, we're over a million, I can't remember the exact number now, people. And if we're starting to think about change, if we started with every single person who works for the NHS, the power of that would be phenomenal. And I don't think we ever harness that.
0: No, I completely, mm. completely agree. Don't harness that, and don't harness the amounts of data that come through the hospitals. Because when I heard, honestly, I could not believe how much data. And you think there's a lot, but no, I fully appreciate that. Is there anyone anything else that anyone would like to add?
3: Just, to, just a, just a bit about quadcopters. I think I mentioned earlier. Um, these quadcopters have been sort of like prototyped in, uh, or piloted in Canada. And what they do is they they set up a drone that goes out when there's an accident, and it goes over to the accident and it surveys the uh, the, the, the situation. Uh, and they're they're trying to get those quadcopters or those drones to actually deliver uh, um, some kind of aid to those patients before the ambulances get there. And mm-hmm. That's a fa- that's a fantastic use of technology, I think.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And and you know that will save millions of lives.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, and there's other products, you know, like high tech products such as stop the bleed uh, kits which save lives which are out there and, and start to move forward and there's so many of these things it's very difficult to keep up up to date with but mm-hmm. technology is moving fast and, and the sooner the nhs can get on board and start to drive these things as well as you know um, uh, help and, and and contribute to society I think it's going to be it's going to be a massive, massive opportunity and and it could well change the whole of the 1.25 million people working in the NHS um, in the future. It may not need so many people um, Mm -hmm.
0: because uh, a lot of it will be automated. Interesting, interesting. Stephen, what would you like to
1: add? Yeah, it's it's an interesting point that that Peter raises. All of this technology, uh, there is plenty of opportunity. And I think that the NHS has moved on from... The behemoth that it used to be, this lumbering oil tanker that once it's get going, you, you can't change direction. It is more receptive now to ideas such as that, and and I'm hopeful, and I suspect that uh, well, I've seen changes where they are more receptive, and you will start seeing uh, whether we'll see the quadcopters, I don't know, but but sort of that sort of thing. It's it's going to be a lot easier, I think, to to get that introduced because people are more open to the idea. Very very exciting times.
0: Mm -hmm. It is very exciting times. There's a lot of good innovation that I've heard from digital leaders and you know and ultimately it does it, it result in saving lives so you think why can we not be on board i mean there's a lot of bureaucracy before you have to cross and you know i do fully appreciate that um right as we are approaching the end of the podcast there's one question i would like to ask you all. steven already had a heads up on this one so I do apologize um so mike henry asked this question in a previous podcast and now it's become a little thing that we ask so what was your favorite stuffed toy as a child
1: Oh wow! Okay. <laughs> um, oh. Stuff um, well, stuffed toy. Well, I when I was a kid, when I was about uh, two years, three years old, I was given a panda, which was bigger than me. <laughs> um, and you know what? I've still got it. My <laughs> mum's well, uh, mom, dug it out of her loft. She's moving house right now. And she said i believe this is yours uh, I'm, I'm not sure what to do with it frankly but there you go i can't throw it out can i Of course, she, course she's kept not. it for 55 years so <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna keep it now
0: <laughs> love that kamal what about you
2: uh, mine was quite unusual it was a polar bear um, oh, nice yeah i used to love arctic animals for some reason so penguins puffins polar bears you name it all that kind of stuff seals loved them um and i don't know where they got it from but they bought me a polar bear
0: <laughs> love that love that <laughs> what about you peter
3: well i can confess i haven't got mine still but i had a little baby uh it was a little dog um i don't know why i got a dog but it's a, it's a little cushioned dog which um, used to get lumbered about all over the place And and even I think when I was in a pram, when Mum was pushing me up to town, you know, to the shops, I had this dog thing on me, and I couldn't work out what it was. And one day I asked, her, said, "Well, what's this dog?" And she said, "Oh, it's just a toy. Don't worry about it." And it went (laughs) everywhere with me. It went, you know, in bed. Didn't quite go in the bath, but you know what I mean. It was, it was, it was was with me all the time. But uh, yeah, it's it's strange. I think probably everybody's had a a soft toy at some stage in their life. (laughs) Hundred
0: percent. I mean, mine was stuck between two. Mine was either pole off Teletubbies. Um, I think my mum put it in the wash once and I literally sat there and watched it go all the way round and round and round and round until it came out. Or uh, it was um, like a little tiger that I had, like a rust toy thing I got from boots from like a Christmas, you know, these little collection things that you do. Um, so, yeah, that was mine. Um, No, thank you, Shane. That was a nice little end to uh, the podcast. I'd like to say thank you all so much for taking part. I think we've had a great conversation and I do hope that you've enjoyed doing it as well.